is the key to good writing, I was once told, is clarity. And so, uh, whether you are composing an essay, a research paper, or speech, there are some rules you need to follow. They're quite simple. Tell people what you are going to tell them. Tell it to them. And then, tell them what you have just told them. It's a tried and true method attributed to the likes of Aristotle, 20th century preachers, and a host of others. And I've got to be honest, it's always seemed rather dull to me. Nevertheless, great authors and speakers alike employed this tactic, and Matthew is one such great writer who does just this. See, we're in a, a section of Matthew that's pretty key. Starting here at the end of chapter 4 and verse 23, and going all the way to the end of chapter 9. And in our short paragraph this morning, verses 23 through 25, Matthew is summarizing what's about to happen for us. He's telling us what he's going to tell us. Then he's going to tell it to us in detail. And then he's going to tell us what he just told us. We, we know this because in chapter 9, and we'll get there eventually, at the end of it, it repeats almost verbatim, the words in our paragraph today. And this forms sort of bookends that mark out this section as its own kind of unit. It hangs together. Uh, a fancy way of talking about it is to refer to it as an inclusio, right? Fancy, right? Uh, we have traditionally referred to these sort of sections as literary sandwiches. And so we've said the two bread parts kind of are on the outside, and then the middle is really those defining features of these sections with which we want to concern ourselves, right? So the sandwich, right, you have ham in the middle with the ham sandwich, turkey in the middle with the turkey sandwich. Well, here we have a words and works of Jesus sandwich. Chapters 5 through 7 are the Sermon on the Mount, and chapters 8 and 9 are the works of Jesus, him performing all of these miraculous healings and deeds. And the thing joining these two chapters comes in chapter 7, and I think it, it signals us even more to what Matthew's intent is in this particular section. It comes in verse 28 of chapter 7, Matthew 7, verse 28. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. See, Matthew is giving us a portrait of Jesus as one who has authority. He is king. Now, that's key to understanding Matthew's gospel, that Jesus is the king. I mean, chapter 1, he tells us Jesus is born king. He's the son of David who brings the blessing of Abraham to the world. He is heir to the forever throne. He's born of a virgin. He's named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Indeed, Matthew says he will be Emmanuel, God with us. It lays out for us in chapter 1 the credentials of Jesus for being the long-awaited Messiah King, the rescuer 
of God's people. Then in chapter 2, Matthew traces for us Jesus' geographical movements as a child to highlight the fact that he fulfills all these various prophecies about the Messiah. So this first two chapters, got all right, he's got the credentials of the king, check. He's fulfilled the prophecies that have been made about the king, check. And then in chapter 3, Jesus, when he identifies with the sins of his people and goes into the waters of baptism, is anointed king. The Holy Spirit descends on him. And the Father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Then at the beginning of chapter 4, he begins to take the actions of a king. He's held up for us as a new Adam, as the last Adam. You remember Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. Adam is there. He's tempted by the evil one, and he fails and falters. The evil one tempts he and Eve to eat from the tree, and they do, and they plunge the world into chaos and death and disease and sickness. Not so with Jesus, humanity's new king, humanity's new Adam. He is tempted in the wilderness by the devil, once more about a tree, but he succeeds where Adam fails. Adam tries to take a crown for himself and rule himself at God's expense. And Jesus refuses a crown and goes to the cross in order that he might reconcile sinful people to himself. He obeys God about the tree. I like the way David said it, that Jesus in the wilderness, when he is tempted, says no to Satan and yes to the cross. We also can put all these images together if we're really good readers and we're thinking about all of the Old Testament allusions that Matthew is, is making, and we can see a mosaic of Moses. Do you notice that Jesus goes down into Egypt, comes out of Egypt, passes through waters, goes into the wilderness, and then in chapter 5, he stands on a mountain to take the word of God to the people of God? This is exactly what Moses has done. Moses wasn't king per se, but he certainly functioned as that in Israel. Last week, Mike pointed out how Jesus, with a word, calls his disciples to himself. He commands them, follow me, and they obey. Over and over again, we have seen and we will see throughout this gospel, Matthew is saying, king, king, king. The king we have waited for is here. The long night of darkness is over. A light has dawned on God's people. Things are going to get easier. It's exciting. The king is here. And that's what Matthew wants us to see throughout his gospel and in this section particularly. That Jesus is the king and his power is revealed in his words and his works. He's going to show us that through the Sermon on the Mount and the healings that Jesus performed. In light of this truth of who Jesus is, the only rational response to the king is to obey him, to follow him. So that's our exhortation this morning, follow the king. We're going to work through 
a short little passage in two parts. We're going to talk about the miracles of the king and the message of the king. We pray and we'll begin our time together this morning. Father, we come to you this morning as those who need a fresh drink of living water. We thank you that you never turn away those who come to you in humble faith. We come once more asking for a fresh experience of your spirit. We ask that you would speak to us now through your word. You would change us and make us more like Jesus. We thank you that because of Christ, because we have put our faith in him, we can know you as Father rather than as wrathful judge. Thank you for the love that you've given to us in Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. So we come to the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has gathered his, his team, not of the most best, and that's not a great sentence, not of the best and brightest people, not of those who have the most potential, but of fishermen. He's set up his headquarters, uh, not in Jerusalem, but in Galilee. Not in NYC, but in Nellie's Ford. And now, he begins to do his ministry. Look at verse 23. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, that's the ten cities, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Back in his younger Air Force days, Mike often tells me, he, he used to perform what he called, or I guess calls, uh, walkabouts. And it's, it's a pretty self-explanatory activity. Uh, he would simply go out among the common airmen, you know. He was a really important guy, if he hasn't told you in the Air Force. They have to salute him, right? That's a thing. But so he would go out among the airmen, and he would just walk about. You know, he would build relationships with them, figure out what was going on in their lives, and just sort of get a finger on the pulse of the squadron. And of the many things he was attempting to accomplish with his walkabout, well, one of those was to discover the needs of the people and to meet them so that everything could continue functioning appropriately. And this is sort of what Jesus is doing here at the beginning of his ministry. There would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 small villages in Galilee. And Jesus is just hitting all of them up. He's walking about, he's engaging in relationship with the people, and he's meeting their needs. This teaches us right from the get-go that Jesus is approachable. 
right? He's not some unaccessible king locked away in a palace in Jerusalem. He's walking about among the common folk with a bunch of fishermen in his crew, meeting the needs of the people. He's humble, and he cares about and welcomes even the most lowly. We see it as our paragraph is repeated on the other bookends in chapter 9 and verse 35, which marks off the end of our section. We read, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. You see how that's almost verbatim, right? And then verse 36, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus goes to these people and his heart goes out to them. He realizes uh, that they don't have good leaders to help them. He realizes that they are harassed and helpless. He sympathizes with them. He meets their needs. What a good thing it would be for us to pray to have hearts like Jesus. Not only towards one another, being committed to doing walkabouts, if you will, learning about one another's lives, meeting one another's needs, serving one another, praying for one another, but also doing this inside of our community. Getting out and seeing, where is their need? How might I meet that need? How might I serve those who are still walking in darkness, even though the light of the world has come? How can I love well those who are in deep distress, like sheep without a shepherd? Certainly we cannot heal as Jesus does, but we can can befriend and pray Jesus here, though, does do a whole lot of healing. And you see in our summary paragraph, it just says he healed every disease and every affliction among the people. And Matthew, what he's going to do when he gets to chapter 8, remember he's telling us what he's going to tell us, then he's going to tell it to us, and then he's going to tell us what he just told us. So in the middle part, in chapter 8, he's, he's going to actually enumerate some of these healings that Jesus does. He's going to spell them out for us. And one of the really interesting things is... to to consider, is that this is just a sampling of what Jesus did. I heard one uh, one pastor describe it as tapas. You all have eaten tapas food, right? Uh, It's different. Usually you go out, you order one big plate, you have all the food right there in front of you. Uh, But if you do this Spanish thing and you go to a a tapas bar, uh, the first time I went, I had to explain over and over again to my mother, not top less, tapas. So if you're making that mistake, don't make it. Uh, you go to a tapas bar, and you order all these various dishes, and they all come out, and you just kind of take a little bit off of this one and that one, and that one doesn't look so good, so I'm not going not gonna to eat that one. You just kind of take a sampling. And this is what Matthew has done. And I share that to say Jesus did far more miracles than are even recorded for us here. So as, as we sit back and we watch what Jesus is doing and we are amazed at his authority and his power and, and the works that reveal him to us as the real king, I want us also to consider 
He's done even beyond this. Consider the magnificence of the king. That said, let's look at the beginning of chapter 8. Sermon on the Mount has finished, and we read in verse 1, When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the man's leprosy was cleansed. Next, we have a Roman centurion come to Jesus. He explains, I have a servant at home. He's lying paralyzed. He's in great distress. He's in pain. And Jesus says, I will come and heal him. And the centurion replies to Jesus, verse 8, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. Jesus marvels at this Gentile's faith, tells about how his followers will come from the four corners of the world, and then finally replies to the centurion in verse 13, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Next, we see that Peter's mother-in-law is lying sick with fever. When we read in verse 15, he touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. Think what a wonderful picture of salvation that is. We are sick with the disease of sin. Jesus comes to us touches us, raises us up, and we begin to lovingly serve him. Then there is a discussion of the cost of following Jesus, and after that comes the the famous uh, storm at sea. You remember the disciples and Jesus are are crossing uh, the sea, and there is a huge storm. There are winds and waves crashing against the boat. Jesus is uh, curled up and sleeping And the disciples who, remember, they're fishermen, so they've seen a storm or two, uh, they're sort of freaking out. So this is a a pretty, pretty big, is it a squall? It's a pretty big storm. And they come to Jesus, and they say, wake him up, and they say, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And in verse 26, uh, Jesus said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Jesus is a king with authority, an authority that's revealed through his works. He has authority over disease, and over the seas. His authority over the natural, and, as we'll see in just a moment, his authority over the supernatural. Not only is he dominant over diseases and nature, he commands demons. See, in that next section that starts at verse 28, there are two men who are possessed by demons. Jesus comes to their country, They live among the tombs. They they cut themselves. They're a mess. And when these two men encounter Jesus, the the demons who are possessing them cry out before the Lord. 
What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And we read in verse 30, Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged Jesus, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And Jesus said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. With a word, he commands demons. He he commands the, the natural and the supernatural. Disease, nature, demons, all bow to his authority. And yet we haven't come to the climax of Jesus' authority yet. We come to that with two stories in chapter 9. We're going to read the first one in its entirety, starting with verse 1 of Matthew chapter 9. And getting into the boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, Some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? Jesus then said to the paralytic, Rise. Pick up your bed and go home. And the man rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This is quite the story. I always loved it because the the guy's friends, he's paralytic, they're bringing him to Jesus, and they're hoping that he will enable the man to walk again. And Jesus says that your sins are forgiven. And that's the greater miracle. But I always thought, like, man, initially there, if I'm the paralytic, I'm like, great. Kind of like you get a sweater on Christmas and you open up. This is just what I wanted. But Jesus has a a method to his apparent madness. You see, he he wants to show that he doesn't just have mastery over those things that are physical and over those things that are spiritual. He wants to show that he has the authority to forgive sins. No one can forgive sins but God. He's showing them just what kind of man he is. He's the God-man. And if he were not, the Pharisees would be absolutely right in their conclusions. Jesus would be a blasphemer. But Jesus says, so that you know who I am. It's like, you don't even know who I am. So you know who they're, so they can know who he's dealing with, who they are dealing with. He says, so that you can know I can forgive sins, I'll tell this man, rise, walk. That's easier than forgiving sins, but I can do both. And they marvel at his authority. Jesus is the king and he has authority over disease, over nature, over demons. He can forgive sins. And he has authority even over death itself. We read of it in verse 18 of chapter 9. While Jesus was saying these things to them, behold, 
a ruler came in and knelt down before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come, lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. There's a little interruption here. A woman uh, comes and, and touches him, and, and he heals her too. We'll talk about that when we get to this chapter. But, but drop down to verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away. Because the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand. And at once, she arose. Who is this man? Who is the one who heals like this? He, he touches the leper and the leprosy is cleansed. He takes Peter's mother by the hand and the fever leaves her. He heals with a word, a servant who's miles away. He tells the waves and the sea to stand still and they obey. He casts out demons with a simple word. He forgives sins. He raises the dead. Who is this? Who has this kind of authority? And the answer is the king. Jesus is the king of glory. He's the king of kings. He is God with us. He's Emmanuel, and his name is Jesus because he will forgive the sins of his people. He's the king who lays down all his power and majesty and humbles himself by taking on flesh and becoming a man so that he might die to save sinful men. He's the king who goes to the cross in the place of criminals like you and I so that we don't have to face eternal death, so that we don't have to go under the right wrath and judgment of God, the wrath that we have earned. Jesus takes our place on the cross so that we can have a place in the family of God. He is an incredible king. He has authority over all things. He, he reveals his power over all things through his words, through his works. We notice there is, we're going to get specific content when we get to the Sermon on the Mount in coming weeks, but look back with me at our, our original text here in verse 23 of chapter 4. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. What, this relates to Jesus' words, what, we must ask, is this gospel of the kingdom? We're going to try to answer this question. Uh, again, a lot of English class references this morning, but we're going to ask those questions. Uh, what, where, when, and why? To figure out what, what precisely is meant by this phrase, the kingdom. And, and it is important to know Matthew says uh, kingdom of heaven, whereas your other gospel authors will say kingdom of God. Uh, the terms are coterminous. They mean the same thing. There's, there's no distinction there. There's no difference. Matthew simply uses kingdom of heaven as a circumlocution for the name of God. 
So, like a good Jew, out of reference for the name of God, he doesn't say God explicitly when he's talking about the kingdom of God. He uses heaven in its place. That was a lot of detail. These are the, the same thing. The idea is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is what? That's the question we're trying to answer. What is the gospel of this kingdom? And so first, what is the kingdom of God? And you would be shocked at how much ink is spilt over this very question. Many, many, many books. And I'm going to try to give you a very simple answer and then expand it. Most simply, the kingdom of God is God's rule exercised over God's people in God's place. If you want to just boil it down to a a word, because that sounds confusing, just think and remember going forward today, it is God's rule. His rule is king. The kingdom is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. That one commentator writes, God's kingdom comes not when Israel regains her territory, but when God rules. When Jesus inaugurates his ministry, the kingdom comes near because God gives him authority to rule. God always reigns over everything, but his rule becomes more visible when Jesus teaches, heals, restrains Satan, and calls the redeemed to himself. When men and women repent, believe, and walk in God's ways, they embrace his rule. To enter the kingdom is not to cross a border, but to embrace God's rule. Uh, The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is God's rule over the redeemed in the material universe. The kingdom of God is the great theme of Matthew, and it's the great theme of Jesus' ministry, especially here in the Sermon on the Mount. The whole sermon over and over again is concerned with, who gets into the kingdom? How do I enter the kingdom of God? And so we ask, what does it mean to enter the kingdom of God and embrace God's rule? Carson responds, we get an idea of what is meant when we compare Mark 9.45 and Mark 9.47. The first verse reads this way, listen carefully. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you, listen now, to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. The second verse reads this way. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell. To enter the kingdom of God then, in the simplest of terms, is to enter into eternal life. And so what what is the kingdom? In summary, the kingdom is the king's power over the king's people, those who have been redeemed, in the material universe, the king's place. To enter the kingdom of God is to submit to his rule and receive eternal life. All right, well, where, I've said this, in the material universe, and so you go, well, where is the kingdom of God? Where are its borders? Is it, you know, is it in the Middle East? Is it, is it you know, somewhere uh, around Alaska or maybe at the North Pole? Where is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is present wherever the king is. Where Jesus' rule is exercised over his people, there is the kingdom. See, the kingdom is not, it's not merely spiritual. You with me? 
if the kingdom were merely spiritual, then God could have saved himself a lot of trouble and just skipped Christmas. The kingdom of God began, is being ushered in, came to earth with the incarnation of Jesus. And the kingdom is, is visible throughout his ministry, and it's visible today. The kingdom of God breaks into history as Jesus heals every affliction and disease. So when he's healing, these miracles are illustrating the kind of kingdom that Jesus is bringing. In Jesus' kingdom, disease doesn't have any purchase over his people. In Jesus' kingdom, sin doesn't have a place. In Jesus' kingdom, death is so vanquished, it's a distant memory from the past that no one can hardly remember. See, Jesus brings his kingdom and and heaven meets earth. We see his kingdom wherever he is. I think where we most clearly see the the visible kingdom of God today is where Jesus' rule is most explicitly manifest. It's in the church. His kingdom is not synonymous with the church, but it's certainly present where the church is. As we, God's people, submit to God's rule. church is a place where the future kingdom, when it comes in its fullness, is foretasted, experienced, revealed, previewed. I think this by way of illustration, you get a sense of this every Sunday when we gather, when we sing praises to God, submit ourselves to his word, celebrate a meal together. You get a sense of it as we serve one another through the week. I mean, I, Linda already mentioned it this morning, but I, I love uh, yesterday. I know not all of you were there, uh, but it was just so fun. Uh, some of our godly women uh, told some godly lies uh, to, to trick Linda into a wonderful surprise for her birthday. So she had family and friends here, and it was, it was awesome as she was, you know, trying to blow out her candles and, and not cry, and I'm back there going, don't you cry, I'll cry, you know, like, like, in recognizing that this is a, a taste of what it's like when God's kingdom comes. People serving one another, celebrating who God is together, loving one another. See God's kingdom in his people. As the church follows the king, they create, we create spaces that look and smell like the kingdom. And the spaces are both physical and relational. The kingdom is the king's rule over the king's people in the material universe. And the kingdom is wherever the king's rule is present. Leads us to our next question. But when is the kingdom? We sort of teased at this a little bit. This question's a little bit trickier to answer. Uh, and theologians typically address it by uh, what is termed inaugurated eschatology, uh, or uh, more simply, the already 
and the not yet. The here and the on its way. You see, this is how we describe God's kingdom. It's, it's come with, with Jesus, but it's not come yet. It's here and it's on its way. It's, not, it's come in part, but it's not yet come in its fullness. This is sound. It's the testimony of the, the, the Bible uh, in general. But let's look at just two phrases of, of Jesus specifically so you know I'm not making it up. Matthew 12, 28. Matthew 12, 28, Jesus says this. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It is by the Spirit of God he was casting out demons. Unless you want to go the other way with the Pharisees, and then you've got problems. So he's saying that the kingdom has come. In Luke, he later says, the kingdom is in your midst. And yet, he promises the coming of the kingdom time and again. And in Matthew 6.10, when he's teaching us to pray, we're taught to pray this way, right? You'll, you'll know it. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is, is already and not yet. It broke in with Jesus, but it hasn't yet come in its fullness. This is why Jesus describes it as, as a mustard seed. Something pretty insignificant. Not much happening there. Yet you plant that seed, and over time it, it grows. And all the nations of the earth shelter themselves in it. Also describes it as leaven or yeast in bread. Not much, but it works its way through the whole dough. Maybe, maybe think of it this way. The already and not yet of God's coming kingdom. Think about when it is. Sort of like the relationship between D-Day and V-Day. V-Day, not Valentine's Day, guys. Uh, Victory Day in World War II. Right, remember, D-Day brought this incredible victory for the Allied troops. And as a result of that day, the enemy was decisively defeated. Right, it was only a matter of time before the final victory would be achieved, even though the war still continued. So, by way of analogy, D-Day is like the first coming of Christ, which has brought the kingdom already. The promise of redemption has been realized. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. The decisive victory has been won. Sin, death, and the power of the evil one have been broken, destroyed. And it's only a matter of time before final victory is won. And yet, the war still continues as we await our V-Day, the final victory when Christ comes again to finish what he started. The kingdom has come is growing, and we await its final consummation. Next question, how? How does God's kingdom come? How has his kingdom come? The answer is God's promise and God's plan. The cross. God ransoms his people out of death and into the life of the kingdom through the cross. This is really shocking because you have to put yourself, if you were 
in the first century and you're a Jewish person, you are waiting for a physical kingdom. When the Messiah King shows up, someone like Jesus, who's doing the things that Jesus is doing, you are expecting them to come with a sword in their hand, vengeance in their eyes, death in their heart. This Messiah King is coming to vanquish the enemy. And so when Jesus shows up and, and people are going, hey, he's, we think he's the Messiah, we think he's the king, the expectation is that he will smash Rome and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. And the shocking twist is that that's not what he does at all. Instead, he goes to a cross. He shows up not with a, a sword, but with stories and sermons. He doesn't sit in a palace in Jerusalem, but has no place to lay his head. Jesus is the king who brings his kingdom through his death. He ransoms us through his death. Where is the king's kingdom? Where the king's rule is exercised over the king's people. How? By way of the cross. Jesus died at his horrific coronation. Remember in Mark, he's given a scepter and a purple robe. He's crowned with thorns. He's strung up on the cross beneath a sign that reads what? King of the Jews. He's the crucified king. And he's crucified so that his loving, saving rule, his kingdom, might come to all who repent of their sins and believe in him. The promise of God to save his people to himself is accomplished at the cross. So think about it. King Jesus wore a crown of thorns, thorns being a sign of the curse earned by Adam, so that his ransomed bride can wear a crown of gold engraved with cherubim, lilies, pomegranates, and palm trees. He wore the crown of death so we might wear a crown of life. Anyone who believes. Non-Christian, you should believe in the crucified and risen King. Jesus' words and his works reveal that he is the God-man, that he can forgive sins, that he can rescue even the likes of you if you will put your faith in him, if you'll repent and turn from your sins. Repenting is a, a turning away from my sins and my own kingship in my own life and to God and his kingship in my life. Jesus is a good and mighty king. Stop ruling yourself. Lay down your weapons of rebellion. Submit to the king. Lastly, we'll ask, why the kingdom? Why any of this? Why the gospel of the kingdom? And the answer is because of God's grace. God, in his goodness and kindness, 
decided that he would save us. That he would ransom to himself a people who deserve death. That's pretty incredible. Well, the why of our salvation, the why of the kingdom, is because God loved us. Because we were lovely? No. We were ugly. We were his enemies. But he, in eternity past, decided that he would love and save his people. Even at the expense of his beloved son. This is how much you are loved, church. This is the love that you are commanded to come into, non-Christian. This is really, really good news. We can be saved from our sins and do eternal life. That we can have peace with God and with one another. It's really good news, but it's only good news if you obey Jesus' command to repent and to follow him. You see, if you don't do that, it is grave news to you. Because when Jesus does come to consummate his kingdom, he will come not to bear burdens as he did the first time, but to bring justice. When he brings his kingdom in its fullness, he is going to give the final death blow to sin and to evil and to all his enemies. Those who insist on ruling themselves in rebellion against God will be sentenced to an eternity in hell under the just and right wrath of God. The gospel is grave news if you reject it. If you reject the command of the king to repent and follow him, your future is full of weeping and darkness. Yet if you will turn, your future is full of life and life and love. The future for all who will turn from sin and trust in Christ is dazzling. The day is described for us in Revelation 21. Love this passage. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. You can be made new this morning. Let us all once more embrace God's rule. Jesus is the king, and we owe him our loyalty. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness, your grace, and your mercy. We thank you that as you've called us to faith in Christ, called us together as your people, that you've also called us together as your kingdom people that you rule over us. And where you are, your kingdom is. We thank you that you are with us. Thank you that to know Jesus, 
is to know life. To enter your kingdom is to enter life. We thank you so much that your power, you use it for our good and for your glory. Help us to joyfully submit ourselves to King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.